You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the podcast designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. This is episode number 68, Best of PSI 2019. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector who want to reach their potential to serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Now there is a challenge ongoing on writing abstracts for the next year PSI conference in Barcelona. Um, we are going to do this all together and if you want to join this community effort on writing an abstract, if you have done that already or it's the first time that you're writing an abstract, join this community now. I've submitted three abstracts to, together with co-authors for the um, conference in 2019 and all were accepted as oral presentations. So learn how you can be successful in um, submitting an abstract there. And if you are not successful in terms of the oral presentation, there's still the opportunity for a poster presentation, or maybe you're even preferring that one. There is uh, lots of opportunities there. So, and today we are actually talking about the best of the uh, PSI conference this year, so 2019. And um, the, this time I've structured the episode a little bit different. It mostly consists of interviews I had with different people at the, the conference. So enjoy the series of these uh, interviews now. The podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practices and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to special interest groups, the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Ah, yeah, and by the way, regarding the abstract challenge, just go to my homepage, cfxstatistician.com slash abstract challenge and join the challenge set. I'm sitting here with Andrew Wright, who just gave a really, really nice presentation in the visualization and software uh, session. And he had a very good, nearly kind of data storytelling-like approach to um, communicating data. And you had um, three really kind of nice uh, take-home messages um, for your presentation. Can you speak a little bit to this? Yes, yeah, so, so my presentation was um, introducing the concept of question-based visualizations. So a, a kind of a different way of thinking about how we create visualizations and the, how to communicate these um, messages from the visualizations. Um, and I think one of the main things was to start really from a question. Have a real question that you want to answer with a particular visualization and then designing the visualization to directly answer that question rather than what we tend to do of um, designing visualizations that just represent the data. Yeah, I think you also put then the question actually at the top as kind of the title instead of putting there something like scatter plot of X, 
proposals, why or something like this. Yeah, exactly, because, I mean, everybody knows this is a scatterplot. We don't need to tell people when they're looking at a visualization that you've got a scatterplot. What is more important is to say, what am I trying to get across with this visualization? So by putting the question there or putting the message that um, is in the, um, the visualization as the title, it really emphasizes this point. Going further in that, um, we are commonly using tables. Why do you think this approach is actually better than just producing the tables? So I think it's one of the things is it really brings the team together to work out what what they want to do with their, their The, the question. So, so by actually bringing them together, agreeing on a question, you get very much alignment on that. Then having the visualization that addresses that question, it really kind of um, means that it's very clear and concise a way of, of doing that. I mean, tables, and there's nothing wrong with tables per se, and tables can be part of this visualization. But I think in the past, what we tend to have done with tables is have different tables um, just representing like a summary table of a particular endpoint or a, um, a summary table of the statistical analysis and it becomes very disparate and if someone wants to know the, the answer to a particular question they have to look around through many different tables or listings so this is about bringing everything together under one roof and whether it be a table listing or even a, or, or a visualization putting them together on, under a, the heading of one particular question and if you would have a question where you would need different visualizations to basically answer it comprehensively, you would have all these visualizations there together with the relevant um, description in terms of, for example, p-values and things like that, so that you can comprehensively answer the question instead of kind of going to page number 5, 25, 105, and 505 of your report. Is that the case? Yeah, very much. I mean, I think one of the, I think that the, one of the attributes of these question-based visualizations is all the data is together, like you were saying, but also it's concise enough that it's, for instance, on one page. If you need lots of pages to answer a particular question, then probably you're, as, you're asking more than one question. So I think, yes, for one question, you bring all the data together, present it on one page, so that the, the person looking at the, the um, report or something or can go away knowing the answer to that particular question. So it's, that's really nice to put that kind of constraint on it naturally so that you are forced to make a decision of what's the best way, what's only the relevant data and what are the best graphs and then produce really high quality graphs instead of just having lots of lots of uh, tables. Do, What's your feedback that you have from, from um, non-statistician support set? So I think there's different aspects to the feedback. The first one is sitting down and talking in a language that the clinicians understand when we're coming to deciding what the question is. It's something that certainly a number of clinicians have really liked. They like the fact that instead of talking about what graph we're presenting or what analysis they're doing, we can talk about what is the question we're trying to answer. So I think, I think that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is certainly the, the feedback of, hey, you know, I can see the answer, I can see it, is, is something we've heard that people say. You know, it's, it's not, I haven't had to find it. It's just there in front of me and I, I can deal with it straight away. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you very much.
So now I'm speaking with uh, Nestad. He just presented at the Benefit Risk uh, Special Interest Group session. And he had a really, really nice presentation about how you can use um, benefit risk approaches into, for no-go go situations and especially kind of when you have this gray area in between. So, so there were three key takeaways from, from your presentation. What were these? Um, hi. Um, so one of the first um, key points was that um, you, know, you can use quantitative benefit risk decision making in situations where decisions aren't clear. So in many instances you have a very clear go or a very clear no-go criteria, but you might end up in between and in that context um, benefit risk decision making can offer a, a, a very good environment as you can consider all the outcomes, all your, all your efficacy, all your safety outcomes in one decision framework um, to make um, a, a, an appropriate decision. Yeah, and so that, for that you need to be first clear on what are all the different criteria and you need to be clear on how they relate to each other, so, so in terms of the different weights of these kind of things. Yeah, so one of the steps in um, uh, going from qualitative to quantitative benefit risk is to make a judgment on how outcomes compare between each other, so um, what the value judgment is on achieving a certain value on a primary outcome versus another um, uh, efficacy outcome versus a safety outcome. And so when you have that um, um, value judgment in between those outcomes, you can derive the weights and that enables you to um, combine all of those outcomes into one metric, which is the benefit risk score on which you can base your decision making. Yeah, okay. So what was the second key takeaway from So from the your second key takeaway, um, what I hear from a lot of people um, in terms of quantitative benefit risk assessment is this issue with subjectivity and the evaluation of the different outcomes. But actually, benefit risk decision making can help you make those decisions transparent because those weights will reflect the viewpoint of a group of decision makers. Um, whereas if you are just uh, making a decision on a, on a gray area without, um, without this kind of method, then it's extremely difficult to justify and you may be also biased in your opinions. So this really makes your decision transparent, it makes you communicate it easily and it enables good decision making. Because also the kind of this waiting part you do that irrespective of the, of the different outcomes. So, so basically the waiting is already decided, that's then off the table and then you can can focus on the further decisions. Yes, so ideally you do the waiting before you see the study results or even before you even design the study if you want to do it in a, in a if you want to use that to actually help design your study. Um, you can do it before you design the study or before you see your results and in that way you have weighted everything and then that takes that discussion of the value of different outcomes out of the table later on when for example you don't have such a good result on your primary, like it's good enough but not as good as you wanted it to be and you have to start considering other outcomes uh, whether it's efficacy or safety all of this would already have been done so that takes that discussion off the table and um, I think in, 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 in practice what I've seen is that these discussions take a really long time and, and um, a lot of energy is spent on resolving these whereas the time invested you would put in um, this kind of waiting process in comparison to that is not very much yeah yeah I, and so the third Takeaway. What was that? 
So the third takeaway was really just just uh, just an informative um, and, and information. So I presented a decision-making framework um, that that um, statisticians can use um, to evaluate a study design and evaluate go-no-go criteria. And um, the framework that I was uh, presenting it combines the strict no-go criteria with the benefit-risk assessment portion um, uh, to give um, uh, so that you can. Um, derive the decision-making properties of your of your criteria, your benefit-risk criteria, your study design, and that way you can really um, use all of these um, pieces to come up with one decision-making uh, uh, threshold on the benefit-risk score. But it also includes this no-go situation, which traditional MCDA does not include. So in traditional MCDA, if you fail the primary endpoint you might still have a positive benefit-risk balance because the remain the efficacy you have in the remaining efficacy outcomes might still outweigh the risks, but in reality you've discarded that um, situation already. So this gives you a much better idea of what the distribution properties actually are because you're conditioning on um, not failing a no-go. Yep. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alexander. So now I'm standing here next to uh, Rachel Phillips, and she's having a really, really nice poster about AEs and how there's lots of AE analysis out there, but they're not really very well used. And for example, she has a really, really nice volcano plot here on on this uh, on this poster. Do you mind speaking us quickly through this volcano plot and what you can see there? Yes. So sure, with the volcano plot, it's an alternative to presenting adverse event data that you would typically see presented in a two-by-two table. Um, it helps you see which events are occurring at a greater rate, but it also helps you identify um, those with the risk difference, or perhaps the odds ratio, um, is greater in the intervention compared to the control. So you can flag signals for um, possible adverse drug reactions to follow up later on. I, so, in terms of the um, X and Y axis, can you talk a little bit to that and how kind of you, you should use color in such a volcano plot? Yeah, sure. So, um, on the X axis, you can put uh, metrics such as the risk difference, the odds ratio, or the hazard ratio. Um, and then on the Y axis, you have um, so we we put it onto the log scale. It's a p value that you can you can get that p value from any test. This is used the Fisher's exact. And then, then we put it on a log scale to help make, this, make it spread out slightly more. Um, and so then the color saturation is used, so the stronger colors will indicate those events with the smaller p-value that you might be interested in looking at further because um, you think there might be a signal for causality. So, so that's a very, very nice kind of way to have redundancy. Basically, you have, on one hand, you have the... the um, the color saturation that speaks about how significant, so to say, it is. and um, But on the other hand, you also have the location. All those that are higher up uh, have smaller p-values. And um, I also think what's really nice is that all the ones on the right-hand side, so with a positive risk difference, are red, and all on the left-hand side with a negative risk difference are actually blue so you can directly see 
what points into which direction. Yes, so the, the color is then yes used to distinguish which way the risk is going. Um, yeah, and I think it's I think it's a great plot, and I think we should be using it more to communicate our adverse events and clinical trials. Yes, yeah, so, but one of the problems really is there's so many um, analysis out there, and especially visual analysis are so helpful in that space. Um, but there's they're not widely used. What are you doing about that? So that's that's what I'm trying to um, identify with some few of the work we're doing at the moment is speaking to people from the pharmaceutical industry, the CROs, and uh, clinical trials within academia to um, identify what the barriers are to the implementation of these methods. And if it's if it's something to do with maybe the clinicians or the regulators, um, and so we've got a survey open at the moment that hopefully um, we'll get lots of responses from. And so as a listener, please fill out the survey. We will put the survey link also in the show notes. And please help Rachel to kind of get this data because that will be very, very valuable for us all together, isn't it? Yes, that's true. And it will really help with future work identifying solutions to these barriers. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. So now I'm standing next to Nicolo Bassani. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> okay. And he has a really nice poster about a review of the global statistical test for multiple endpoint analysis. So can you shortly summarize what, what, what this global statistical test is? Yeah, it's a methodology that allows to compare treatment groups on multiple endpoints by obtaining only one single summer of evidence on the form of a p-value compared to scenarios where you have to use more standard step-down or step-up approaches like home procedure or bonferroni. And it's extremely powerful with small sample sizes and it controls type 1 error rate. And it's extremely useful when you've got multiple endpoints and you want to understand which are the best ones which are sensible, sensitive in detecting a treatment effect when there is large variability and a small sample size to work with. Awesome. Thanks so much. And um, what would be scenarios where this would be most likely be helpful? Well, I can think as a, per, as a direct experience, scenarios where you want to build a composite endpoint and you've got uh, a questionnaire where multiple scales have been summarized and you want to know which one, which scales are the most sensitive to detect treatment differences. This is where you can build, build the composite endpoint using different options and then compare the results for the composite endpoint with your uh, with a global statistical test of subset of multiple endpoints and see which is the one which is which are the ones which are better able to detect these effects. Or when you're at an early development of the of the protocols of your drug development program, there is no real standard standardized endpoint for the guidances, and then you can go with this, find out again which are the best endpoints you can look at, the one which are most clinically relevant and the one where, where the drug has really an effect, run the test and come up to the regulators to discuss. We found out that these this endpoints are more effect, most affected by the treatment. We would like to go with this and then speak with them and take it from there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nicolo. Thanks to you for interviewing me. Okay, now I'm sitting here with Rachel Lawrence. Actually, congratulations to be 
becoming a board member and being the next uh, chair of the scientific uh, committee. And Rachel had a really, really nice poster about a burning topic, um, estimates. And this time, not so much about estimates themselves, but actually how to get this concept across to non-statisticians. So can you um, please tell a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you, Alexander. Um, and actually, uh, I like it how you said that it was a burning topic because the title on my poster, I did, I did say how, how to ignite that estimand uh, discussion. Um, so um, I'm working um, in Delphi Values and work with patient-centered outcomes team, and we're working with patient-reported outcome data. And what I've recognised is that it's really not been discussed within the sort of community um, of the HOR, if you like, community um, of, of what the Esterman framework and how we might think about how we're describing our objectives relating to patient reported outcomes in that framework. Um, so what I wanted to try and do was illustrate um, by, by, by using the Esterman framework but by breaking it down into the pieces, how you could think about it um, in perhaps from a non-statistical point of view, um, about how you framed in that context of a, of a, of a PRO endpoint, um, how you almost translated what we perhaps think that we're doing at the moment into that framework and, and how it made you think about the questions um, I think also we find a lot of the guidance at the moment is maybe not so much in oncology and and the endpoints that you might be looking at over a long period of time, um, like a time to event endpoint or a change in baseline over a, a, a few years, something like that. And they're the sort of endpoints we often have in PRA data in clinical trials. So I wanted to try and think how we how we just really start to think about that um, in terms of uh, and using the framework to help help everybody think in from that page so it, it's good to kind of have specific examples that the maybe physician you're just talking to can actually relate to to so speak with a diabetologist about hpa1c and speak with someone from respiratory about uh, copd and you know not some vague Thing, but but make it really crystal t clear and kind of help them connect this into the topic, yeah. Yeah, and I think like one really clear example with PRO data is, um, you know, we, we realise that you might be collecting something like symptoms over time, but also in oncology setting, particularly people might also die over over time. But then, if you say to somebody, or oh, we might handle that as a hypothetical event somebody might say well how how can that happen like death it wasn't hypothetical <laughs> like um you know their symptoms clearly you know we're not gonna they're not carrying on i mean um so i think it's about helping people think how that framework works how we explain some of the context of the language um and it's massively a learning process that's the other thing i, I think especially when i was you know developing this poster um there wasn't one answer yet and, and, and there won't be so I think it's um, not thinking there's one estimand that's going to suit your PRO and your trials it's like the other other areas we might need to have a number of estimands that might be relevant um, and it's really there's the implications for the protocol and how you collect the data you can't just pop a PRO in and say well collect it till disease progression it's like what does that mean what, what do you want to measure about that so 
trying to get those discussions and as soon as you do you start to realize oh well actually you know yeah yeah we, we want to collect data after progression or, or beyond progression while they're still on treatment for example and what to do if patients switch treatment or other things and how that relates to PRA data and nobody's really thought about that before um, but yeah coming back to you, what you said really having specific in context examples that people can say oh yeah I'm used to thinking about my symptoms um, or I'm used to thinking about just a global quality of life and how it changes over time and putting that into context is yeah what we're trying to do and and work with all the other groups that are really discussing the Esterman framework all the statisticians that, that really get it but get it out to other people is the next step really yeah, and what we definitely don't want is that it becomes a only statistical topic because, as it was said earlier today in the regulatory town hall, it's actually more for the non-statisticians than for the statisticians. Yeah, I think taking away some of our statistical language and, you know, uh, trying to keep it more back to the, the framework and the cost concepts of the Estermans as, as has been clear through quite a few sessions at conference it's been really nice but that's been really nice hearing a lot of people saying different things because it kind of empowers us to go yeah okay we don't have to feel we're going to use all the same exact same language it's just that structure to help us help us out more awesome thanks so much Rachel okay thank you Alexander Okay, thanks so much uh, for this really, really nice uh, presentation here at the PSI conference. It was really, really inspiring. And you mentioned a phrase that statisticians need to step up, step forward, and step on the gas. So can you expand a little bit about that for, for our listeners? Yes, we need to step up because as statisticians we have immense power in our organizations. We are the people that understand the data and get insight from it. And if we're going to use that power we first need to realize it so step up and feel confident and powerful step forward because there's no point in just having that power we've got to go into our companies and show just how useful it is to them and step on the gas because it matters every minute counts and in terms of the stepping on the gas so we always try to make things let's say perfect and uh, you know have the most comprehensive kind of review of data and Everything needs to be very, very accurate. But you mentioned also that time is so critical because decisions are made based on what's then available. So can you speak a little bit to how you kind of manage this kind of balance between kind of having the right information but also providing it on time? Well, quality is always fitness for purpose. And the fitness for purpose in a, uh, a real-life environment is the purpose of making a decision that's going to make something better and add, add some value. And time inevitably is a dimension of that. If you're too late for the decision, your quality is zero. That's, that's a very, very good point. So, so basically we should, in some sense, embrace kind of set that there might be errors in it that there might be you know it's not optimal but at least it comes in time and therefore gives any value well all statistics are provisional so we're trying to optimize against just how provisional the numbers are with how quickly we need to produce them in order to inform a decision making okay. yeah. you, you also have a very very kind of 
unique way of looking into how statistics is actually regulated, so to say. Um, you come from this gov government kind of piece where you made a really, really nice case why statistics needs to be, let's say, a little bit isolated so that um, everybody can agree on and trust the data because if there's no trust in the data, everything basically falls apart and you made mention kind of even nations falling apart because nobody trusts their numbers anymore like Greece or Argentina. And um, how does that translate in, let's say, maybe a company point of view? Should their statistics also be kind of maybe separated out a little bit so that um, it's more trustworthy overall within the company but also outside of the companies? I would say yes, and I think you see it increasingly in the debates inside organisations like Facebook, for example. It's very easy for Facebook to make a claim that they are um, protecting the integrity of the statistical analysis they're doing on people's data, but it's harder unless they've set up an institutional framework to demonstrate that. So in my world, we've done that by having legislation that Parliament has passed that actually makes very clear what the um, regulatory environment is, what the responsibilities are, and we are accountable for that. I think increasingly companies will need to do the same. Yeah, I think, and then actually speak about it. And, and speak about it, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. because I think very often there's this notion of, well, you just made up the data that fits your needs yeah. and you you know, covered away all the data that didn't. And to, to make sure that this is not occurring, something like that would be really, really good. What do you think kind of plays transparency in that, that regard? I think transparency is kind of necessary but not sufficient. I think people need to be able to see what you do. So we set a lot of store by kind of publishing information about our research program, about our various protocols, about the policies and practices that, that we adopt, so people can first of all see those, but they can also hold us accountable to them. They can ask questions about, say, well, how many, how many cases have there been of, of this particular thing happening? But I don't think it's sufficient because I mean, trustworthiness requires all kinds of other things. A lot of it is in our own skills and the way we operate. A lot is in our own presentation of our, our numbers. So transparency helps and is necessary, but it doesn't mm. get you all the way. Okay. Thanks so much for this very, very short interview. An absolute pleasure to be here. Good luck with the rest of the conference. To this a little bit unusual episode with all the different um, interviews. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Um, please remember there's the abstract challenge for the conference in 2020 ongoing. So if you want to have a good argument for um, why you need to travel to Barcelona for this conference, the best argument is having an active part in the conference. So, as usual, this show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. If you want to find the show notes, you can find them as always on theeffectivestatistician.com. And so, go on and reach your potential. Lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. <laughs>